there's some spiritual realities that you and I need to be aware of. I'm going to take a break this morning from the book of Daniel, but really, I don't know so much that it's going to be a break because it's going to kind of, I think, lead into where we'll be in the book of Daniel, Lord willing, next Sunday. But there's some spiritual realities that we need to be aware of. And I know we are, but we're in a, you realize we're in a spiritual war, right? We're in a spiritual war. And I hope between this Sunday and, Lord willing, next Sunday, you'll grasp a hold of that reality in a more real way and act accordingly. Because I think we have a tendency at times to forget the spiritual realities that's going on even right now in this service. I remind you that Jesus said this of the devil. He said that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And he has nothing to do with the truth. Because the truth is there is because there is no truth in him. When he lies, which is all he does, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar. And the father of lies. The devil is a master liar. He's a master liar. He tells us lies, and then if he, if he gets you to believe the lie, then he'll tell you more lies to do with that lie, and he's just a master liar. It comes naturally to him. But not only is he a liar, he's a murderer. He's a murderer. His motive is murder, and his method is a lie. He knows that if he can get you to believe a lie, he can kill you spiritually. And here's another fundamental truth we need to understand about the devil, and that is he tells the biggest lies about the biggest subject, and that is God. And I, I've told you this many times, but the devil wants you to have a wrong concept of God. If he can get you to believe wrong things about God, he's got you right where he wants you. Because as A.W. Tozer said, no religion rises higher than its concept of God. You see, if he can get you to believe the wrong thing about God, or anything for that matter, if he can get you to believe the wrong thing, if he can get you to think the wrong thing, he knows he can get you to do the wrong thing. You, if we were to go back to the book of Genesis this morning and look in the, in, in the, at the account of the garden, we, we would, of course, find that the serpent, when, when the serpent deceived Eve... He began out. He began by trying to plant in her mind thoughts of negativity about God. Has God indeed said to you, Eve, you can't eat of any tree in the garden? I mean, really, Eve, you've got to be kidding me. God doesn't want you to eat of all the fruit in the garden, all the trees in the garden. 
God's holding out on you, Eve. Really? Really, Eve? Negative thoughts about God. And then he said to her, you will not surely die, Eve. In other words, Eve, just, just be skeptical about what God has said will happen. God's not being truthful to you, Eve. You're not going to die if you eat this fruit. We'll come back to that idea later. And then he, he tells her, Eve, God knows that if you eat this, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like him. You're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, Eve, God's holding out on you. Suspicious about God. Suspicious. God isn't really good, Eve. If he was good, he wouldn't hold this thing from you. Sound familiar? The devil tells those same kind of lies over and over and over again today to us. Really, if you boil down the devil's lies, you'll find that these types of ideas are behind his lies. But there's, there's one more thing that he wanted Eve to believe about God. Eve, you're not going to die. In other words, Eve, God's not righteous. You don't have to fear God, Eve. You can eat this and live, not die. And, and with, with that lie, he's, he's enticing Eve to, to think lightly of God. He's not only encouraging her to be skeptical about what God has said, he's trying to convince her she doesn't really need to worry about what God has said. God may have said, you'll die if you eat it, but you won't die. You can eat this fruit and you can get away with it. The devil has always been behind the idea that you can sin and get away with it. He's always been the one behind that idea. God's not going to punish sin. And the reality is he continues to tell that, that same lie today. And maybe when you were a child, you were, you were fearful that, well, if I do such and such, lightning may strike from heaven and I'll be consumed. But then you did it and lightning didn't strike. And the devil says, see, I told you you wouldn't die. Here's what I'm convinced of this morning. Our nation is in the condition that it's in today because we no longer have a proper fear of God. The enemy has convinced so many people that there's no reason to fear the Lord. There's a reason why the debauchery and sinfulness of our nation is on full display today. And not only is it on full display, but our nation praises it. Now, for some of you, this may mean absolutely nothing, but if you don't believe what I just said, anybody heard of Little Nas X? Been in the news lately, right? 
His latest music video is so full of abomination and is so despicable and degrading that I can't even talk about it, and I'm not going to this morning. But go read what people say about it online. You would think it was the greatest thing that's ever happened in society. And it's full of every kind of wickedness you can imagine and probably beyond. Now, the psalmist describes humanity's problem this way in Psalm 36. He said, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. This is the same psalm that the Apostle Paul quotes in Romans chapter 3 when he reaches the end of his case establishing that all the world stands guilty before God and he says there's no fear of God before their eyes. And that is the root of the problems that we're experiencing in our country. There's no fear of the Lord. The proverb te- Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is insight, but we've decided that we're wiser than God. We've decided we know more than God. Why? Because we've believed the lies of the devil. And I want you to understand this morning that God's word is the inspired and inerrant and infallible word of God, even in all of its difficult parts. And we're going to talk about some of those difficult parts this morning. But there are some theological truths about the nature of reality that we ignore to our own peril. I told you last Sunday that God is not mean, but he is dangerous. He's not mean, but he is dangerous. And there are certain realities about God that we need to understand and that the devil would like to distort and cause us to believe a lie about. This morning I want to talk to you about five groups of people, five stories in the Bible, about people who took God lightly and paid the ultimate price. Not necessarily an encouraging truth to preach on this morning, but I felt clearly that this is what God wanted me to bring today. The devil wants you to think lightly about God. Let's talk about Nadab and Abihu for a minute. Remember Nadab and Abihu? Nadab and Abihu were the first sons, were the sons of the first high priest, Aaron. They were anointed priests. They enjoyed incredible privileges, the incredible privilege of serving God in the tabernacle. Exodus 24 tells us some remarkable things about Nadab and Abihu. We're told in Exodus chapter 24 that Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. 
and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, they beheld God and ate and drank. Nadab and Abihu saw God. What an incredible experience that must have been. But Leviticus chapter 10 tells us now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put it, put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, if you would read the previous nine chapters of Leviticus, you would find out that God gives very careful instructions for about how they were to live, how those in the tabernacle were to serve, how the priests were to operate. But for some reason, Nadab and Abihu didn't care. They offered strange, unknown fire on the altar and were consumed by fire. As I said, for nine chapters, God gives careful instructions. He makes his instructions incredibly clear. And by the way, the sacrificial system was not for people who wanted to live like hell and not go to hell. It was his covenant for people who were to love him dearly and wanted to live in his deadly presence. That was true in the Old Testament sacrificial system and it's true concerning Christ's covenant on our behalf on the cross as well. Jesus didn't die on the cross so you could live like hell and not go to hell. But Nadab and Abihu said, it's just God. Sure, we're supposed to offer the fire in a particular way, in a certain way, but let's do it our way instead. And here's another reality for you this morning. You can do it God's way or you can do it your way. But mark it down, your way will always lead to big trouble. Our society is doing it their way. What's the song? I did it my way. Burger King's motto, have it your way. And everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, just like in the days of the judges in the Old Testament. And when everyone does what's right in their own eyes, it leads to chaos and destruction, and that's exactly what we're experiencing across our nation today. It's been said that however much time it takes to figure out what God wants, that's time well spent. And how true that is. Wait on the Lord. We read it to begin the service this morning. We've sung about it this morning. And however much time it takes to figure out what God wants, that's time well spent. But church selfishness is rampant in our nation and it's rampant in the church as well. We want church done our way. It's all about us. We'll get involved as long as it's the way we want it done. And if not, you can forget about it. 
God help us to die to ourselves and figure out what He wants and do it. But sometimes we have to wait. In fact, in the, old, in the Bible, wait is a synonym for trust. We're in a hurry. But God's not. At the moment when God was establishing his presence on earth, Nadab and Abihu treated God lightly. And immediately after his sons were consumed by their strange unknown fire, Moses reminds Aaron. His his sons have just been consumed by fire. And Moses says to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. You take God lightly at your own peril. Don't think you can do things your way, that you can sin and get away with it. It's a lie from the devil. It may, you may seem to escape earthly consequences for a while. You may even escape earthly consequences all the way down to your last breath. But listen to me this morning. God will not be taken lightly. Go a little further in Israel's history, you come to a man named Achan. God's people are finally crossing the promised land, into the promised land. They've crossed the Jordan River on dry land. Now they're, they've conquered the first city that stood in their path, and that was no small feat. Jericho was a mighty fortified city. And as God's plans usually are, God's plan for conquering Jericho was a unique one. I haven't heard of any other military leaders saying, march around the city quietly once a day. One time a day for seven days. On the seventh day, march around seven times. Then the priests are going to blow their trumpets and you all shout. I think if I was in the military, I'd resign at that point. Dishonorably discharge me. That don't sound like a good plan to me. But when God gives the plan, you can count on it. It's the right one. But there were some more instructions that God gave them. You see, this wasn't really to be a war of aggression. They weren't conquering the Canaanites. God was passing judgment on the Canaanites. Here's how one commentator described the Canaanites. Even by ancient standards, the Canaanites were a hideously nasty bunch. Their culture was grossly immoral, decadent to its roots, Its debauchery was dictated primarily by its fertility religion that tied eroticism of all varieties to the successful agrarian cycles of planting and harvest. In addition to divination, witchcraft, and female and male temple sex, Canaanite idolatry encompassed a host of morally disgusting practices that mimicked the sexually perverse conduct of their Canaanite fertility gods. Adultery, homosexuality, transvite destism, pedastry, sex with all sorts of beasts, and incest. Don't sound a whole lot different than America today, frankly. And as a result, God said, everything in Jericho is accursed, is devoted to destruction. The walls fell, they conquered. Then on to the city of Ai. Joshua sent spies out to Ai. They came back and said, Joshua, this is no big deal. 
We only need two to 3,000 men. Leave everybody at home. Let them stay and rest in the camp. We only need two to 3,000 men. And on to, on to the city of Ai they went. But when they attacked Ai, Ai struck back. And Scripture says they caused the hearts of the Israelites to melt. After their defeat, Joshua tore his clothes, fell with his face on the ground in front of the ark. He put dust on his head and he began to cry out to God, wondering, God, why in the world did you bring us here to let us be defeated? And God said, there's sin in the camp. You know the story. He soon learned that the defeat came because a man named Achan was greedy. He'd taken a coat and some silver and some gold from the spoils of Jericho. God had said it's devoted to destruction. Achan said, I'd like a little bit of it. And God's judgment was brought. He was stoned and burned with fire. Achan learned that day that what belongs to God, when you lay your hand on what belongs to God, it's deadly. And everything in Jericho belonged to God. Dennis Kinlaw said, don't keep your thumb on the scales. And at the moment, God was giving the land to his people, a land that was to be God's sanctuary, a land that was precious to God, so precious that God said, you can never sell it. You have to keep it in the family. At that moment when God's promise to Abraham was being fulfilled, at that pivotal moment when God said everything in Jericho is cursed and it belongs to me, at that moment Achan treated God lightly. And remember this morning, keep your hands off what belongs to God. This church doesn't belong to me. And this church doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. Keep your hands off what belongs to God. You go a little further in Israel's history and you find a man named Uzzah. You remember the story. It's been a dark time for Israel. It appears Moses' tabernacle had been burned. Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They thought, well, if we take the ark out there, maybe it would be like um, the Raiders of the Lost Ark and and Indiana Jones, and we can just conquer. Maybe they probably didn't think all that, but you know what I'm saying. The Philistines captured the ark. They put it in the temple of their god Dagon, and in the night, the idol of Dagon fell face down before the ark. Well, they thought that's strange, and so they picked the idol back up and put him back there, and that night... The idol fell back down again, face down in front of the ark. Only this time the heads and the hands were broken off. And then the people in the city all began to get tumors and die. Something had to be done. But for six months, after six months, the Philistines said, we got to get rid of this ark. And so they put it on a cart pulled by two milk cows. And the cows made a beeline straight for the city of Beth Shemesh. And from there, it was taken to Kirjath-Jerim, where it would stay for the next 60 years in Kirjath-Jerim. 
David eventually becomes king. He decides it's time to take the ark and bring the ark back. And so he sends the priest to go get the ark at Kirjath-Jerim. So what do they do? Well, the Philistines put the ark on a cart with a couple milk cows. We'll do better. We'll put it on a new cart with some oxen. And as those oxen are bringing the ark on that cart, one of the oxen stumbles and Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark and God strikes him dead. You see, well, wait a minute, but, but it's just a box. What's the big deal? Seems like such a minor thing. I mean, after all, do you want the ark to fall in the mud? But God had made it very clear that the Levites were never to lay their hands on the ark. The ark was to be carried by poles. It wasn't to be carried on a cart, and it wasn't to be touched. And if you read the story, you find out David's initially angry with God because of this. But David should have known better. But not only should David have known better, the priest and the Levites should have known better. And you find out the second time that David has the ark moved, they decide to do it again. And the scripture doesn't give any explanation other than to say, you know what they used to move the ark? They put the poles on it and they carried it. They knew what they were supposed to have done, but they treated God lightly. Oh, sure, God says carry it with poles, but what's the big deal? Let's put it on a cart. It's easier that way. I mean, after all, who wants to lug this thing all these miles from Kerjath Jerem to Jerusalem? Don't think you can treat God's commands lightly and get away with it. You see, we have to be careful lest we become casual with the things of God. Go a little further in Israel's history. And you read about a man from Judah. All we know of him, we don't even know his name. He's just the man of God from Judah. We don't know his name. The only thing we know is his story. God told the man of God, go to King Jeroboam and tell King Jeroboam I'm not happy with his perverted worship. And so he did what he was commanded. And in the process, King Jeroboam reached out his hand and commanded the man of God be seized. And when Jeroboam reaches out his hand, God shrivels up Jeroboam's hand. So what's the king do? He begs the man of God, pray for me that my hand will be restored. So the man of God prays and God restores King Jeroboam's hand. And then the king begs this man of God, stay and eat with me. And the man of God said this, he said, even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat or bread or drink water here. Now why? For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So the man of God turns down Jeroboam's supper meal and he goes home a different way. But along the way, he gets tired and he sits down under a tree. You can imagine I, that, you know, oftentimes when you've been on a spiritual high for a while, you're headed back home, the adrenaline just kind of runs out. 
You ever felt that way after camp meeting? You're just tired. All the adrenaline's gone. And the man of God's sitting under the tree, and he's hungry and tired, and an old prophet comes by. And the old prophet invites the man of God to come home with him and eat with him. And this unnamed man of God tells the old prophet God's instructions. God said, don't eat bread, drink water, don't go the same route home. And at this point, 1 Kings 13 tells us the old prophet answered and said, I too am a prophet. And an angel said to me, by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to him. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who brought him back. He cried out to the man of God who had come from Judah. This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat or drink. Therefore, your body will, will not be buried in the tomb of your ancestors. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, I can just imagine he drug out that meal as long as possible. He probably had seconds and thirds and dessert because he knew when he was done eating it was all over for him. The prophet who brought him back saddled his donkey for him. And as he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was left lying on the road with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. Some people who passed by saw the body lying there with the lion standing beside the body. And they went and reported it in the city where the old prophet lived. I've got to confess, I feel some sympathy for this man of God. Because we've all been there. When you're exhausted, some of you might be that way right now, you're exhausted and hungry. And then you have an old prophet of God who claims he's a prophet from God come along and say he's speaking on behalf of God. And after all, it could have been from God. But what was the problem? The man of God did not ask God himself. He knew what God had said to him. He has somebody else say something different. And rather than seeking God for himself, he takes someone else at their word. And he paid the ultimate price. Can I just warn you this morning, the enemy loves to get us when we're worn down, when we're tired. And it's in our times of weariness that we've got to be on guard. The man of God treated God lightly in that moment. And because he did, he paid the ultimate price. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? I mean, all Nadab and Abihu did was offer a little strange fire on the altar. All that Achan did was keep a little bit of the spoils of war from Jericho. All Uzzah did was just reach out and steady the ark. All the man of God did was eat a meal. How should we respond to stories like this? Well, some people, like the atheist Richard Dawkins, responds to these accounts with horror and anger. Richard Dawkins said the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infantile, genocidal, felicidal, 
pestilential, megalomaniacal. This guy thinks he's smart, so he uses all these big words. You get the idea, right? Is that the case? Was the God of the Old Testament a vengeful God full of wrath and vengeance? Some people read those stories in the Old Testament. They say things like, well, that was the God of the Old Testament, but thank God Jesus came and showed us what love is like. They even say things like, Jesus bore the Father's wrath so we don't have to. I'll say more about that in a moment, but before I do, let me tell you another story. Jesus died, was buried, rose again, ascended to heaven. Pentecost came. God's Spirit was poured out. Revival was taking place. Thousands were saved, filled with the Spirit of God. And one of the signs of the Spirit's presence is radical generosity. Maybe I need to repeat that part again. One of the signs of the Spirit's presence is radical generosity. Christians in Jerusalem were suffering for their faith. But the believers were of one heart, soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. A man named Joseph sold his property, gave all the proceeds of his property to the apostles. He laid it at the apostles' feet for them to distribute to those who were in need. This was such a blessing they changed Joseph's name to Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And from then on, he was no longer known as Joseph. He's known as Barnabas in Scripture. Son of encouragement. What a blessing. Now, let me just say, this was not some form of early communism. This wasn't the government forcing everybody to give what they had to everyone else. This is Christian generosity from the heart. This was not required of everybody. But there were some who wanted the praise that Barnabas received without the sacrifice Barnabas exhibited. And so Ananias and Sapphira cooked up a plan. They sold the property, kept back part of the proceeds, claiming they'd given it all. And as the result, as one old preacher put it, they lied, they died, and they fried. I'm not sure that's the best way to put it, but that's what happened. They thought, who will ever know? We can get all the praise and still make a profit. You know, one of the problems with sin, it makes you dumb. It does. One of the problems with sin is it makes you dumb. And Ananias and Sapphira thought they could deceive everyone and take God lightly in the process. And Peter says to him, wasn't this property yours when it was in your hand? When you sold it, wasn't the proceeds yours? You didn't have to sell it. You didn't have to give any of it. But you did. And in the process, you claimed you were given it all. And you lied to the Holy Spirit. You see, they wanted people to think about them in a certain way. But they didn't want to do what it took to be what they were claiming to be. Now, I'm tempted right here to camp out for a little while. 
Because quite frankly, church, this is where a lot of people in our churches are right here. You want people to think about you a certain way. So you live a certain way, you dress a certain way, you, in front of everybody else you claim to have every work of grace that's ever been offered. But at home you're something different and everybody knows it. And God help us. I mean, I understand we're all more comfortable and around our own people and God convicts me regularly on my attitude and the way I speak to my wife and children and God's working on me. I'm just going to be honest. I'm not the perfect example. Jesus is. But church, I want to be all that God can make me be. It's my desire. And church, let's not put on a front and claim to be something we're not. God's not mean, but he's dangerous. Here's what you need to understand this morning. The God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament. He's the same God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's not mean, but he's dangerous. Anybody read the Chronicles of Narnia? The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe... Remember the story? Susan finds out that Aslan is a lion. And she asks nervously, Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver tells Susan, If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking. They're either braver than most or else just silly. To this Lucy asked, then, isn't, then he isn't safe? And Mr. Beaver answered, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Amen. He's the king, I tell you. Amen. He's good. You see, we have a tendency to try to want to make God safe to handle. We want to create a God in our own image. The truth is, God isn't safe to handle, but he does want to make us safe for him to handle. That's what God wants to do. Don't make a God in your own image. Instead, allow God to make you into his image. That's what God wants to do. He's not safe. He's majestic. He's glorious. He's righteous. He's holy. He's love. But he's not safe. And if we're not holy, we're in danger. I read a story about a man who 32-year-old man in Australia who he decided to put his fighting skills to the ultimate test. He had been told by his kung fu instructor that he'd reached a level where he could now kill animals with his bare hands. Well, he decided he'd try it out. So he snuck into the Melbourne, Australia Zoo. He scaled the lion enclosure 
But there was more than one lion. There were several. And do anybody think who know who won that battle? The zookeepers found the remains of the man the next morning. Now, you question a man's sanity, of course. How could anyone hope to take on a pack of lions with his bare hands, no matter what training you've got? It's just foolishness. Church, let's not take God lightly. Eugene Peterson half-jokingly suggested that churches post warning signs on the outside of their buildings. He explained the places and occasions that people gather to attend to God are dangerous. Danger signs should be conspicuously placed as they are at nuclear power stations. Because where two or three are gathered in his name, God is present in the midst. I hope by now you're seeing we shouldn't treat God lightly. God, you can grieve God. You can break God's heart. You can anger God. You can insult God. You can lie to God and you will pay the ultimate price if you do any of those things. And don't repent. It's been said that the biblical witness to the wrath of God is humbling and frightening. But as one man put it, he said, God's wrath is not detached and impersonal. Nor is it the polar opposite to his love and mercy. It is not the selfish frustration or temper of someone who is self-obsessed and irate with anyone who gets in the way of his own self-accusation or self-fulfillment. Instead, it is the wrath of someone who loves deeply and powerfully. It is the wrath that says, what are you doing to yourself? How dare you do such a thing? As Leon Morris says, the wrath of God in the Old Testament is the wrath of a loving father who yearns for his children to come to him. Here's the great reality. God is a God whose wrath is being revealed against sin and unrighteousness. But thank God, he's also a God of love who is patient with us. By the way, those two realities are not in opposition to one another. All of us have treated God lightly. All of us have failed to serve God as we ought. Yet none of us are dead, at least that I can tell this morning. God is gracious to us. Which is why you're still upright and breathing this morning. Because God has been gracious to you. And if you're here this morning and you've been treating God lightly, I want you to understand that it's God's grace that it gives you yet another opportunity to humble yourself and confess your sins and repent, and you'd better do so before it's too late. God is love. God is not wrath. Now let me explain that. Wrath is the contingent expression of the holy love of God that's shared between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Without his wrath towards sin, his love would be meaningless. The Apostle John says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. 
Our love, our type of love, isn't the measure against the standard against which love is measured. His love is. Therefore, as Tom McCall puts it, and I'm wrapping up, he said, therefore, we cannot, with good theological conscience, make such claims as God's holiness and justice demanded to see me damned, but thankfully God's love and mercy wanted me to be saved, resulting in the death of Jesus so that God could get this tension resolved. Nor can we say that part of God called for my damnation while another part wanted my salvation. So Jesus died to deal with God's problem as if the real problem were within God. The real root of the problem that Jesus came to deal with, according to Scripture, is our problem. It is sin. God's wrath is not the product of His holiness while His mercy is the expression of His love. God's righteous wrath is the contingent expression of His holy love. We did not love God but had rebelled in sin against God. God's love for us, love that we cannot even begin truly to grasp apart from the incarnation of love in Jesus Christ, is the reason that he sent his son. The son came for a specific purpose. He came to deal with our sin and secure our salvation. The love of God is a holy love. It cannot be reduced to sentimentality or indulgence. It does not ignore or brush away our indulgence, our sinfulness. Instead, God expresses his love in a way pointed directly at our sin. Divine holiness cannot be considered an abstraction from God's love, and divine love is always at the same time pure and holy. God is love. And God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, none at all. And because there's no darkness in him, and because he is love, his wrath is a contingent expression of his love. In Exodus 34, Moses had destroyed the tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. And God told him to cut out some new stone. He was going to write him again. And then God says this. The Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the love of God. But who will no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Our God is a merciful and gracious God. He is not mean, but He is dangerous. And if you refuse to repent, you do so to your own peril because His love requires that He also deal with sin. He's dealt with sin on the cross. And all you need to do is put your faith in Him and His sacrifice. But if you refuse to accept the gift that He offers to you, you do so to your own peril. And can it be that I should gain an entrance in 
the Savior's blood. Died he for me who calls to Spain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. I want you to stand with me this morning. Church, we must not take God lightly. The devil is doing his best to convince us that you can take God. God said he will judge sin. You don't need to worry about that, Eve. Don't worry about it. You'll be all right. You'll be all right. You're not going to die. Don't believe his lie. And if you're here this morning and there's sin in your life, it's God's grace that right now offers you the opportunity to come back to Father and find His grace and mercy. I want to pause for just a moment and offer you an opportunity today. If there's sin in your life, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He bore your sin upon the cross. I was guilty of crucifying my Savior. I was guilty of crucifying my Lord. It was my sins that nailed him to the cross. I was guilty. Anybody need to pray this morning? Father, I am grateful today that you are a God who is love a God of patience, a God of mercy, and a God of grace. But, oh, Lord, help us not to take you lightly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Lord, I'm thankful that you're not mean. But, Lord, we recognize this morning that you're not to be trifled with either. Over and over again in Scripture, we read stories of those who took you lightly, who believed the devil's lie and refused to follow your instructions and as a result, bore the consequences for their sin. And Lord, there are those here this morning who have sin in their life. And Lord, unless they humble themselves, unless they repent, they will bear the consequences of their sin. But Lord, we're thankful this morning that they don't have to because Jesus, you took their sins to the cross. You opened the way of salvation for everyone who would believe who would repent of their sins and turn by faith to you. And so, Lord, I pray that if there are those here right now that your spirit is speaking to, you would help them, Lord, to humble themselves and confess their sins and turn to you. Lord, I also pray for us who are believers in Jesus. Lord, forgive us for the times when we've taken you lightly. We've not shown the proper reverence to you that we ought. 
Help us, Lord, not to become casual about the things of God. But Lord, help us to be holy as you are holy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.